you talked about rates uh, being high, and you know, we, we were at historically low rates for a long period of time. From my perspective, um, the government essentially, by keeping rates low and issuing money, uh, you know, rescued the world in 2008 and then rescued the world in 2020. But they sort of played out that playbook. And at this point, we now need to clean up the mess that's been created really for the last 13, 15 years. And the way to clean it up is, you know, essentially to burn the forest down a little bit and then, and then you regrow and higher rates are going to cause and are causing lots of pain in lots of different areas. This is the Definitely Uncertain podcast brought to you by Goldwalk Capital. Each week, we look at how high net worth families can improve their lives, decisions, and investments in a deeply uncertain world. We always aim to provide practical information, even if we can't offer specific investment advice. Welcome to the Definitely Uncertain podcast by Goldrock. I'm David Ram, a partner at Goldrock, the more than 20-year-old multifamily office servicing high net worth investors in Israel and around the world. And with me today is Andrew Herrenstein, uh, one of the partners at Monarch Alternative Capital, a large credit investment manager in the U.S. Welcome, Andrew. Hi, David. Happy to be here. <laughs> Great seeing you. Um, yeah, to kickstart, maybe uh, you could just introduce yourself and uh, tell us what you're focused on uh, nowadays. So uh, I am a co-founder and portfolio manager of uh, Monarch Alternative Capital, as you said, which is a, a large global distressed debt investment firm, offices in New York and London, focusing on finding distressed debt opportunities, opportunistic credit opportunities in the U.S. and Europe and beyond. Uh, we Monarch was we founded Monarch in two thousand and two thousand and two, so we are okay. over twenty years old. And I, I have really dedicated my career to distress that investing. I started at a small boutique in um, 1988 uh, and then worked at a, a larger investment bank for 10 years from 92 to 2002. So I've been doing distressed debt investing for 35 years. Wow. So you've seen a few cycles uh, around, you know, that you had the, the 90s, 2001, 2008, nine, of course, COVID uh, now. And, and at the times now, rates are a bit higher now. So we went up about four or five percent in the U.S. in particular. Even in Europe, it's up. Other places. Um, when you're looking at the opportunity set for distressed today versus you know your history, which is which is uh, long and 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 rich and deep, which is unusual by the way. A lot of younger fellows are out there running investment portfolios today. They have not seen a market with these kinds of rates or uh, this kind of uh, situation. How do you compare what you're seeing today versus what you've seen in the past? So every cycle is different. Every cycle in some ways is reactive to the last cycle because whatever happens in 2008, the borrowers, the lenders react in terms of documentation, in terms of the kind of deals they do, in terms of the kind of financing they put in place. And so the, the market is always shifting. Right. And it's one market is always reactive to the next. Uh, and so from my perspective, you know, I, we do the same things. We look for the same kinds of investment opportunities, the same kind of situations, but you have to make some adjustments for, you know, the new opportunities in the market. You talked about rates, uh, being high and 
you know, we, we were at historically low rates for a long period of time. From my perspective, um, the government essentially, by keeping rates low and issuing money, uh, you know, rescued the world in 2008 and then rescued the world in 2020. But they sort of played out that playbook. And at this point, we now need to clean up the mess that's been created really for the last 13, 15 years. And the way to clean it up is, you know, essentially to burn the forest down a little bit and then, and then you regrow and higher rates are going to cause and are causing lots of pain in lots of different areas. It's certainly obvious in real estate where values by definition are much lower on whole sectors of the real estate market. And, you know, there's a trillion and a half dollars of mortgages that are maturing in the next three years, 23, 24, 25. Commercial, and, commercial mortgages? Yeah, commercial mortgages. Com yep. exactly. um, and, and that market would be really hard to, that, it might be challenging to refinance all that in a relatively stable market, but we're not in a stable market vis-a-vis -vis real estate. And, you know, in the beginning, now you're seeing all the weak properties being given back. Uh, you know, the, the, the tier B, the, the, the second tier office buildings, um, and otherwise weaker properties. And as we get further into the cycle, you know, we, you know, we think you're going to see opportunities in uh, senior living, in hotels, in residential, multifamily. I mean, there were tons of multifamily deals that would, and it were done in the last three, four or five years that were predicated on certain interest rates. And even the sponsors that were smart enough to buy uh, interest rate caps, you know, then you get two years or three years and those are going to end and there's going to be a lot of pain, um, from our perspective, hmm. from my perspective in that market. And so, uh, we will be looking at that market as well as sort of the corporate market. So talking about real estate a bit more for a second, what's been, what's going to be more impactful? Is it going to be more the, the maturities of those debts coming due, as you pointed out in the next couple of years, or is it just simply the interest? payments that are on a monthly basis, their interest payments have increased so substantially because when you think about the loan to values, you know, a property is purchased for 100, they go to the bank and borrow 60, 70, they put up 30, 40 of equity of their own money. Uh, the rates did go up uh, quite a bit, but there's a lot of equity to be wiped out for there to be, to, to, for risk to be hit. So unless, unless you're an office building in San Francisco, you're probably still in a relatively okay position on an equity side. So what's been what's been the challenge? All they got to do is wait it out a little bit until the feds lower the rates a little bit, right? Then they're back to, and everything is back to normal. So first of all, I would say it's both. Okay. Um, you know, these companies, the, these properties, these these owners um, are generating less free cash flow. Uh, and, you know, maybe in some cases, generating negative free cash flow, but they can sustain that capital Different sponsors can sustain capital structures for different periods of time. Some, you know, are just going to run out of cash during, before maturity and are going to have to restructure because interest rates, you know, from their perspective may have doubled, right? If they were borrowing at LIBOR plus four right. and LIBOR was zero and now LIBOR is four. So the rates have gone from four to 8%. Yeah. Uh, whatever cushion they put into the deal, in some cases, has evaporated. For the ones that can scrape by, um, they, that either they can scrape by on their own, or they can put a little bit more money in, or they can defer capex. 
or they can you know get a preferred investor in, buy more time for things to change, then the maturity becomes the issue. And for debt that matures now, there's just not financing available. For, for many of these properties, there's just not new lenders available, or if, the, if, if there are loans available, they're not going to come from the banks. They're going to come from specialty lenders that are going to have really high rates that are literally unaffordable. Hmm. And so I think there's some combination of higher rates and inability to refinance capital structures and debt is going to create you know, a, a large mess and an interesting opportunity for investors that have the, you know, the experience and the, and the ability to access those kinds of opportunities. Yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned the, the direct lenders, the guys who are kind of refinancing or at least offering the opportunity to refinancing those loans. What I've seen, at least as an, from an investor perspective, is a lot of those lenders are, uh, are coming in with pretty expensive capital, as you pointed out. But because the rates went up, that the beta of the credit market went from zero to four, zero to five, they're unable to increase the cost of their capital by that four or 5% completely because, like you said, it's, too, it's, it's prohibitively expensive. So ironically, the risk in the market in real estate in particular has gone up pretty substantially. Uh, and the spreads between the risk-free rate and what these lenders are offering have actually tightened a little bit because they can't get borrowers to take at 15, 16%. They'll take it at 13. So when they used to give them at 10 now, or 11, now they're getting 13, which is like this, a tighter spread above the risk-free rate, which is a little bit ironic, actually, because uh, I think it is just too, it's prohibitively expensive. So looking, looking at the corporate space and comparing it to the real estate space, one thing I always found interesting about distressed debt guys like yourself is the, the I guess it seems like the, almost the responsibility to be completely sector agnostic, meaning you're somewhat, uh, you have to be uh, responsible for understanding so many sectors and coming in from a perspective uh, as a distressed debt buyer. How do, what's the responsibility, how does that work? How do you guys cover so many markets? How do you guys see the opportunities in order to effectively be a good investor across all these markets? It's one of the questions I get asked more than almost any other. Okay. Is how do we do as, how do we do as much as we do? How is our approach as broad as we do? Right. Not only are we sector or industry agnostic, we're also sort of geographically agnostic. Mm. So, you know, we will invest in the U.S. and we'll invest in Europe and occasionally we'll invest beyond. And in Europe, right, there's 10 different countries or plus minus with each one with a different restructuring regime. One day, UK is different than France, it's different than Germany, it's different than Italy, it's different than the US. And so you have to be, quote unquote, a specialist. You have to be able to operate within each of those restructuring regimes. And then, as you say, we, we have a very broad approach industry-wise. We have no particular um, industry focus. Right. We do oil and gas, and we do financial services, and we do consumer goods, and we do retail, and we do healthcare, and we do manufacturing. And the answer to the question is that we have one core skill set that is somewhat unique, which is the ability to analyze very complex um, restructuring processes uh, where there's multiple players, there's banks and there's bonds and there's unions and there's trade claims and there's management and there's shareholders all sort of fighting for a piece of the pie. And our job is to figure out how to extract 
maximum value from a really complicated, really messy situation. Now, of course, we can't ignore what the business is. And yeah. We can't ignore the macro, but we also have an extraordinarily talented team uh, that has skill sets across a wide range of industries. And, that we, and so when you bring together the ability, the industry expertise with the restructuring expertise, that's really when you have something special. But what I would say is every once in a while, we'll get into an, a new industry that we've, that we've never looked at before. Right. And the truth is, some of these industries, quote unquote, no one's ever looked at before. A very small universe has ever looked at that industry. And when you get to that situation, who do you think is better off? The small person, the small investor, or the, the, the one bank that has looked at that industry, that hmm. has studied that industry, but, never, but has never done restructuring before. Right. So they have to study on restructuring and understand the legal issues, the psychological issues, um, the process issues, or a firm like ourselves or other distressed firms that have a core expertise at figuring out really complicated, messy situations that has a really strong financial um, element to it. And we will figure out the business. We will talk to the company. We'll talk to the company's financial advisors. We'll talk to the competitors. We'll talk to someone that used to be the CEO of a competitor. We will spend weeks, months studying the company and we'll get up to speed. We will understand that business really well. Uh, and we, you know, we've just proven over a long period of time that we have the ability right. to get really smart on companies and industries. Hmm. But the people that are quote unquote smart just don't really have the ability of the wherewithal to get good at a restructuring process. The, right. The, most, most people. When they get into a room where there's a restructuring, it's the first time they've ever done it, right? If you think of the management of a company, they've never, literally never restructured a company before for the, for the, for the most part. And other people in the industry have literally never done that. And so from our perspective, the advantage, the skill set that we bring is the ability to um, you know, restructure these companies and extract value. So one of the things I've always been interested in on the stress side as well, speaking of all those you know, the, the expertise around restructuring versus expertise around sector is understanding what's actually the assets of a company, you know, whether it's a real estate company or oil and gas, as you mentioned, or whatever it may be, uh, a financials company, and understanding the, the debt structure and then making sure that whatever you're buying, all the debt you're buying, you have enough asset coverage that you have a pretty well-managed risk profile on your purchase. So you're buying something for 100 you know there's $200 of assets. It's pretty decent coverage. Uh, the risk, oftentimes, uh, that we, you and I have spoken about in the past as well, relates to more time, process, to extract that value. Um, when you look at certain markets, think about, uh, th thinking about, I'm thinking about like financial services, for example, since SVB. SVB collapses. Everyone's shocked. <laughs> you know, how, how could this be? A lot of times, the, the financial services industry is a bit opaque in terms of what actually those assets are. Maybe even oil and gas, where if you're doing an upstream oil and gas company, what's the geological reality of that Permian Basin that you're buying? Sometimes it could be a little bit opaque. How do you think about analyzing uh, and quantifying the actual assets that you're relying on to extract that value when you're executing on a, on a transaction, if that makes sense? Yeah, it does. Um, so I, I would say a few things. 
Firstly, there are multiple ways to invest in distressed debt. There are some, there are some investors that take less risk yeah. that will buy primarily first lien, top of the capital structure debt with presumably lower returns. And then there are more aggressive investors, perhaps, that will buy bottom of the capital structure unsecured bonds or preferred stock or equity where they take huge amounts of risk and you know they probably get wiped out once in a while or more than once in a while, but when they make it work, they can double or triple their money. And so depending on what kind of investor you are, I think you have a different approach and a different thought process about the value of the assets. That, that, that's one. Two, different companies and different industries are built differently. Yeah. You talk about it when you jump on oil and gas, you have commodity risk, which totally is, is out of the investor's control. It's like a macro risk um, that you, know, you, you may buy, you may be a secured lender and you think you're buying, you know, at, at, at 70% loan to value, you know, there is the value of the, of the, of the energy of the, of the commodities in the, in the ground and energy prices decline by 30%. The price of oil goes from $100 a barrel to $70 a barrel to $40 a barrel, and you're underwater on your collateral. That's a unique type of risk. Yeah. Um, financial services is, and, and SVP in particular, is a little bit of a confidence game, right? There's a business model mm-hmm. that uses a lot of leverage. And when confidence dissipates, well, when confidence, uh, um, yeah, when it dissipates, yeah. you know, values can disappear. We, have, we would be very careful, or I would be very careful, or investors should be very careful about investing in those kinds of industries. On the other hand, there are manufacturing companies that are, you know, a lot of the companies we look at have 40% market share, 30% market share, 20% market share. It's a leading company in the industry. They're producing a product that doesn't have an, an easy replacement. Um, they, they have the capacity that in, in the industry. And, you know, to some degree, it trades with GDP. And, you know, if, the, if there's a weak economy, then cash flows will decline because people are buying less of that product. Uh, but, and the debt trades off, and you can sort of buy that debt. And then in a year or two or three, the economy will recover and um, cash flows will recover. And right. at that point, you either get refinanced out or you get the only equity of a really attractive business. Interesting. So it, it, where we are in the cycle today, just understanding, you know, uh, opportunity set that you're facing, it feels like it should be at least a great opportunity. But one of the things that often affects it is supply and demand, right? So the, the supply of opportunities and the demand for such opportunities from the money, from the capital providers like yourself. How is that balance playing out today so you can get quality assets for really good prices have a shorter period of time, hopefully, to extract that value and make really good money. What's, you know, where are we in that in that period of time for your business or for managers like you out there, versus you know thinking about two thousand eight nine timeframe where it was a uniquely uh, uh, a uniquely positive opportunity set for you guys. Is that where we are today, or are you think you are we waiting for something else to drop? How how are you thinking about it? So that is roughly where we are today. Um, I, I, of all the issues that I think about and I worry about supply demand right now is not one of them. Okay. We see, we see, I see an adequate, more than adequate amount of, um, distressed investment opportunities. 
uh, and you know the amount of, the amount of debt that's been created in 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 the in the global financial markets is huge. If you look at the amount of debt in the market in two thousand and eight, and the amount of debt in the market today, it's probably triple. Wow! In that in that fifteen year period, and I don't believe that the number the amount of capital chasing distressed that opportunity has come anywhere near tripling. Mm. Um, one of the things that I would say is that people mistake. Um, the default rate as like the key element to look at whether there are distressed opportunities. And I just don't believe that that's true anymore. The world has changed. Going back to your first question, every cycle is different. Um, the world has come, investors have become more sophisticated. There are lots of ways that companies restructure without ever defaulting. And so from my perspective, there's a huge amount of distressed debt opportunities out there. There's a huge amount of the Leverage loan market and the high yield market trading at between 60 and 80 cents in the dollar, but the companies haven't defaulted. Uh, and, you know, because of the documents that were written, the bank debt documents and such, um, by the private equity deals and by, by the private equity sponsors over the last cycle in the last five years, with all kinds of loopholes and abilities for them to raise new capital and to move assets and, and such. It's given sponsors the ability to buy time, to extend their option without defaulting, but those companies are distressed and those capital structures are distressed and there are significant investment opportunities uh, in, in the market. With, but, with, those, with, those weak, with those weak documents, is that also going to be a problem for recovery rates, meaning you're going to buy the debt and how much are you actually going to be able to recover on that debt? Is that going to be a lower number than you're used to? A hundred percent. Uh, if the sponsors have the ability to fight back, if the sponsors have the ability to move assets, then in theory, you can get lower recoveries. Yeah. But what all of that also means is that the price of the instruments right. should That's, be lower. Right. So in some ways, you could say that 60 is a new 80, whereas in a previous cycle, when you had a situation like that, like that the debt would trade to 80 cents the dollar. Now, because your recovery might only be 80 or might be 90, the debt has to trade to 60 or 70 to generate the same return. If a bank wants to sell, they're going to have to find the, the price in the market that, 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 covers, uh, that covers them that somebody's going to pay. And so I think yeah. both sides of the markets have moved a little bit. If, if, the, if the rates move down 2 3%, does the opportunity go away quickly for you guys? You know, that's both a macro question and a crystal ball question. <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm not good at either one of those. Oh, that's too bad. Um, and, and so I, I would assume that on the margin, if rates are lower, um, opportunities will be smaller. Right. I don't spend we, a lot we don't know. Well, we don't don't know spend when a lot of time thinking about that. Okay. Because I don't control it. And so all I can do is look all I can do is look for great investment opportunities in right. the market today. Um, personally, I'm of the view of you know higher for longer, but again. I don't, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about that. I'm focused on finding really great investments. Fair enough. So let's talk. So last question for you today, which is we spoke about, you know, the cycle we're in various sectors that you've had to spend time on over your career. Looking, looking now for 2023, 2024, what, what sector specifically are you most excited about for your industry, which means which is the one that's going to have the most pain, I guess, for uh, for uh, performing investors? Is it real estate or is it something else? What is really exciting for me about the market that we're in 
is that virtually every industry in every country is stressed or distressed at the same time. If you go back to, if you go back to typical distress cycles, what often happens is that you get one or two industries, you know, the, the um, cable industry got distressed, you know, in, in, in one period of time. In 2015, there were a lot of energy uh, distressed energy opportunities. Right. In 2017, there was a lot of distressed retail. But the rest of the market in each of those industries was pretty stable. Today, because the problems are emanating from COVID, and because the problems are a result of government printing capital, which has led to higher rates, interest rates affect every company. Any company that, are, that a private equity firm bought is going to have an issue if they have floating rate debt. And many of them do. Yeah. And inflation affects not every company, not every industry, but many. Labor shortages affect you know, a wide swath of the economy. Supply chain issues so affect a wide range of the economy. And all of that's without a recession. And, you know, and again, if you layer on a recession, whether it's a hard landing, a soft landing, perfect landing, you know, we see companies today that are performing dramatically worse than they were a year or two ago. Sometimes there's, you know, demand pull forward where, you know, in, in COVID, people bought a ton of that product and they're just not buying it today. And so there's like a little bit mm. of disruption. And so I, I don't have a favorite industry. I, I literally, we are looking at every single industry and finding opportunities across just a wide range of sectors. It is a very, very broad opportunity set. And I think it's getting broader. It's getting broader if there's a, if there's a recession. Um, because remember, in the same way on the real estate, these private equity deals that were done in the last five years were done at LIBOR plus four raise. They did a lot of floating rate bank debt borrowing. Yeah. And whatever cushion the sponsors built into those deals has gone away with higher rates. So they have, a, they have very little flexibility. And if you get declining cash flows and rising rates at the same time, which we're seeing, in the last year, tons of companies have gone from free cash flow positive to free cash flow negative across a wide range of industries. Because of the interest layer, payments. And then you layer on top of that the real estate problems yeah. that we've talked about. And it's just a massive opportunity, really as big as we've seen. And, and, and I think that's what makes the opportunity set in distress so exciting. Wow. It is exciting. Uh, and I think on the backdrop on that, which of course we're not macro crystal ball uh, investors, but on the back, you know, the, the Fed have been, have been promising us no more QE or at least maybe even some QT. So their ability or, or our expectation of them coming in and buying more corporate debt like they did in 2020, I assume is not going to happen, uh, which means a lot of guys like you are going to have to come in uh, and restructure a lot of these companies, as you pointed out, burn some of the trees in the forest, so to speak. Um, well, it was great. It was great catching up, Andrew. Really good seeing you as well. I really appreciate your time and your insights. Uh, and it sounds like it may be a pretty good time uh, uh, for you for the next couple of years. And uh, we should definitely keep a, a lookout and keep uh, the dialogue going. Um, and I want to thank everyone for listening. And uh, we'll, be, uh, we'll be in touch soon. Appreciate it. Thanks, David. Good seeing you again. Good seeing you. Take care.